Welcome, everybody. I am Jesse Mogul, and thank you for joining us on the American Contingency Podcast. We are a united nationwide community of steadfast Americans ready for any challenge that comes our way. We inform, equip, and train so you can prepare, respond, and recover from any man-made or natural disaster or situation. And once again, it is an honor and a privilege to have you here. And as we're wrapping up January, moving into February, um, I have this whole theory about how you really get this 60-day window to close out 2023, to really warm up 2024, so that by type February 1st rolls around, if you follow the strategy I teach on my other podcasts and within my business, basically you had 60 days to close out 23, warm up 24, and now you should be really in momentum to really create what it is you seek to achieve in this year, this quarter, however you decide to break up your life in order to find some level of fulfillment, some level of goal achievement in your life. And as I watch what seems like this ebb and flow of precarious information and situations that come over the airwaves through mainstream media and the such, it certainly seems like we are in this state of consistent, if not constant, panic. (laughs) Or at least that's what we're being told to feel. And when I watch this, and mind you, I watch very, very little of the news. I try to keep it down to just whatever I have not turned off on my phone that sends up some little notification. But certainly when I do come across the news and I do recognize this state of panic they seek to place us in, because let's face it, you know, the pain and the sorrow and and the chaos sells. That's what gets us to click on the next article. What I start to wonder is how is everybody's emotional intelligence working when it comes to being able to monitor themselves, have that situational awareness inside yourself to know how are you allowing all of these external events to mess with your locus of control, your internal sense of self. And when we think about emotional intelligence, we start thinking about um, our self-awareness, our self-management, our relationship management, and our social awareness. Those are the four main pillars. And when I go back and I look over some of the topics that we have covered in this show for you all, a lot of it is driven by the content that we create for our members that's inside the member platform. And one of the coolest things that I can remember when we originally started this was this idea that we were really going to seek to teach some things that perhaps were a little bit more outside the box than some preparedness websites or podcasts might seek to lay down for people because there's a lot more to making sure you are prepared for the unexpected than just making sure that you've got a bunker full of food and (laughs) you know exactly where you're going to drive your car in case you need to get somewhere quick. And when I Think back to episode seven with Lori Marino. Um, She's our marketing director. She's the one who makes sure that all of the social media posts are done. Um, There's a team of us that work together in unison with that. And we really seek to make sure that these are getting done in such a way that we bring powerful information to our members, to those of you who are seeking to become members. And part of Lori Marino's discussion that she had with me, and again, that was back uh, episode seven, was a lot of discussion about emotional resiliency. And she isn't the only one who's touched upon this. Uh, When we had Mike Lott 
on the show. He certainly enjoyed covering it as well. Uh, Derek Jones, um, the Southwest coordinator, he was back on episode 12. He talked about going through various stages of um, riots and social unrest and how he was able to manage that um, outside the city of Los Angeles. Uh, Mike Lott, who is our operations manager, he was back in here on episode nine. He covered it as well. Uh, you can go back even to listen to Jenny G, who is our training coordinator. He was in episode 10. And our former training coordinator, uh, Noel Bishop, also came on and did an episode. I believe he was number five. And all of them touched upon emotional resiliency. So I thought, well, what a great topic to bring to you all today. As we begin to ramp ourselves up into this year, we want to discuss emotional resiliency in a way that really gets centered around this idea of preparedness, right? Prepare, respond, recover, inform, equip, train. And part of this idea around emotional resiliency is that it's like a fortress, now, within this vast landscape of experiences, um, this fortress isn't built overnight, just like your life experiences are not happening all at once, right? We're constructing our life brick by brick with this fortress of this emotional resiliency, right? Challenges come our way, experiences, lessons learned, just like a fortress, let's go back all the way to medieval times, would not necessarily know all the times when an attack is coming. It's very similar to our own lives. We live in a very unpredictable world. Sure, some storms like hurricanes, we certainly know are coming, but others like tornadoes, we're not so aware. And earthquakes are certainly just like, hey, let's just shake up your life a little bit. And when we think about emotional resiliency in the terms of natural disasters, sure, some of those can be planned for and some of them cannot be. But when we think about any given Tuesday and just when might you find yourself in crisis mode, that's life's unpredictability. And you may not know the strength of your fortress until the storm hits, until the crisis comes. It's unavailable to you to test your walls and your foundations when life is pretty much just even keel. But it's in the moments of crisis. It's in the moments whenever you need to be at your best, when you're pushed outside your comfort zone, nay, perhaps even shoved outside of your comfort zone. That's when your true robustness of your fortress of your emotional resolve, of your emotional resiliency. That's when it's revealed. The storms of life don't all arrive with a warning, right? Only a well-built fortress, one that's been carefully constructed with preparation, knowledge, self-awareness. Those are the fortresses that can withstand the crises that can show up out of nowhere. In this metaphor, you are the fortress. Have you prepared yourself for any given Tuesday's crisis. And that could be just recently we had a bunch of ice storms in northern Alabama and schools were closed for eight days. Were you prepared for that if you happen to live in a region where ice storms came? Right? It's those little kinds of crises. It's the trying to go up one road to go to work and finding that it's blocked with construction. Now you have to do this radical detour and it's going to make you late. How are you handling the emotional discombobulation that comes from the unexpected? When you allow yourself to experience those moments when you are pushed outside of your comfort zone as opportunities to learn, to grow, to cultivate your emotional resiliency, that's when you're actually building it. 
when everything's calm and humdrum and you're sitting on the couch with the remote in your hand, just chilling out with the fam, you're not really building emotional resiliency in those moments. You can certainly be conversating about your emotional resiliency with your family, discussing ways that you could become better prepared for the unexpected. But conversation is not the way that it's built. It's built in action. We talk about this a lot whenever we go and we do our trainings around the country, just like when we're doing the Adventure Challenge this year. We are specifically gearing people up for this in hopes that what they gain from it is an ability to master some of these techniques that are going to be very essential if they find themselves in a crisis in varying situations. But it's only when you take the action that you actually learn if you have those capabilities, if you have the emotional resolve to work through them. Talking things out, even conjuring it up in your mind and playing it through while we have discussed has certainly worked in the military. It's certainly worked for professional athletes, anybody who performs, even me, before I get on the microphone. I'm reading over some of the show notes. I'm really trying to get myself into the mood. But until the mic goes hot, until the action starts happening, I don't really know how I'm going to perform and neither does anybody else until they're put into the situation. So I want to talk about emotional resiliency today in three different topics that are going to be covered in the February blog posts that I've written. They come out um, every Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday. And what we're doing in 2024 is we're taking the primary category of that month. January's was communication. So all the blog posts were written about communication within each of the 12 categories. So that anyone wanting to know how communication affects medical or health or defense or security or situational awareness, will find a blog post specifically about that. Quick read. I mean, it won't even take you five minutes. If it takes you four, I'd be amazed. The point of them is, is to give you a basic idea of some of the things that you can be teaching yourself and you can be discovering within our membership site so that you can gain more knowledge and you can figure out where you want to start taking action. The best way to help you figure out where you can be taking more action is by introducing a lot of topics to you in hopes that you start to notice which ones there are gaps in your expertise or even if you're just remedial at it, is there somewhere that you can be improving? I am very much a novice in the preparedness world. I do not have nearly the amount of training, expertise, um, historical experiences as many of the people that I've introduced you to that are actual members. They're the one regional coordinating. They're the operations managers. Tom Rigsby runs the whole show. Those people have a lot more experience than I do, and I learn from them, and I ask a lot of questions of them because I can potentially go faster on myself, right? Isn't that the old joke or riddle? You can go faster alone, but you go further together. I have not found it easier to go faster alone (laughs) when it comes to getting prepared. There are so many questions. So I want to tackle emotional resiliency with you all in this episode because in the month of February... We're discussing medical, and we're going to be wrapping all of the blog posts around medical when it comes to communication and outdoors and mobility and income and economics. All of the categories that we have been discussing now for years are all wrapped up in this beautiful little package uh, delivered to you through medical expertise. And through this came this idea of bringing emotional resiliency to the podcast. So let's start off with what we are going to cover in this episode, and there's going to be three primary segments building the foundation of preparedness and self-reliance through a home medical kit. 
There's going to be the effective response in crisis and emergency scenarios. And we're also going to cover cultivating confidence and emotional resiliency in children. Because I think it's extremely important as we begin to cultivate our own strength and determination around being prepared for the unexpected, it's the youngsters in our lives who have way less experience than even I do. And I don't have much. But (laughs) when it comes to the idea of preparedness, emotional resiliency, I have definitely fallen on my face enough times to have learned from my mistakes. But a seven-year-old does not have that. And so we're going to make sure we close up the show talking about how you can build emotional resiliency in your children, right? Because preparation fosters confidence. Just as a soldier trains in peace to be ready for war, understanding and developing your emotional resiliency in times of calm prepares you for the times of crisis. This preparation builds the confidence in your ability to handle the challenges. This will reduce your anxiety about potential future hardships so that when you do go into the action mode, which is where that emotional resiliency is really built, then you've got some of that resolve left in your tank because you know you've prepared. That self-awareness, situational awareness leads to better coping strategies. You want to know your emotional strengths. Know your emotional weaknesses before facing the adversity. Understanding where reinforcements in your fortress are needed helps you shore up those weak links and turn them into your strongest points. And resilience is proactive, not reactive. This is a very important one because if you're reactive, and I want you to notice this within yourself, when something goes a little bit sideways, do you feel your blood pressure rise? Do you feel your blood pressure rise? Are you snapping at people in your family over little minor inconveniences that could just be quickly resolved and instead you're turning them into major blowups and arguments? Building emotional resiliency is a proactive journey. It involves actively seeking out challenges to strengthen your emotional skills. When you're proactively cultivating your emotional resiliency, you will ensure that when the unexpected happens, You're not scrambling and reacting. You are ready. You are equipped. You are trained to respond effectively. So when we think about building the foundations of preparedness and self-reliance through a home medical kit, imagine that this home medical kit, is it's your harbor. It's the lighthouse. When things start to go sideways in your home, you know that you have supplies that are there that can help those that you love or even yourself. And I also do hope that you love yourself and you're ready to go. And this is this became very aware to me the other day what, that I was not as prepared as I would prefer to have been when I was keeping a fire going for the better part of eight days while the weather was well below 20 degrees. And for whatever reason, I decided to use my left hand to move a log rather than the poker in my right hand. And I thought the part of the log I was touching had not been touched by the fire, that it looked rel- it did not look burned at all. Here's the fun thing about wood. It does not need to look burnt to be hot. <laughs> so... 
if some of you are rolling your eyes at me right now, that's okay. So my girlfriend, whenever I touched the log and I immediately burned my finger and I mean, the blister happened so fast. I mean, it's almost like before I even got to yell at myself about what I had done, I already had a blister. We had no aloe in the house. We have no burn gel in the house. I'm going on our website and looking at our social media because I know that we had recently posted something about burns on there. And I'm like, what the hell is cool water? I don't even know what temperature cool water is supposed to be. It can't be hot and it can't be cold. It's supposed to be cool. What's cool? 62 degrees, 51 degrees. I have a thermometer. I would have put it underneath the faucet. So I wasn't even sure if I was handling the burn correctly. These are those times when you realize maybe my home medical kit is lacking a little bit. So let's talk about some of the focuses I want you to have. Just, Just like Ben Franklin once said, By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. I know Tom Rigsby has said that to me before. (laughs) I know he has. I know he has. So when you're building up your home medical kit, I want you to understand the importance of being prepared at home with essentials. These supplies this kit that you have. Um, There's a lot of y'all who are members who've been members for some time who understand the importance of a bug out bag. You know, um, Tom likes to say that what's in his pocket gets him to his car or gets him to wherever his bug out bag is. That bug out bag gets him to the next location he's supposed to go where there presumably would be even a bigger bug out bag, which would then get him to the place that he would shelter in place. Um, He's got like a whole plan. It... (laughs) When I lived in California and we used to talk about earthquakes, he was uh, in he was inspiring me to get a storage facility like 100 miles outside of town, uh, somewhere I could get on a full tank of gas in order to get to a storage facility that have more fuel and that have provisions so that I could eventually get my way to Oklahoma where my parents live or even get out here to North Alabama. Uh, and he creates these scenarios so quickly that it's like you feel like you should have been taking notes by the time he said, did you get that? So when we're talking about a med kit, and it can also be part of your bug out bag, I want you to be prepared with just the basic needs, like the food and the water and the burn jail and perhaps the uh, emergency tent. You've ever seen those things that are made out of like mylar? It, it's like almost like a really strong aluminum foil. I used to carry them when I went skiing because I never knew if maybe I would go off trail and get myself lost. Um, or one time, whenever I popped out of my skis and ended up in like six feet of snow and had to dig my way to a tree and then do this funny looking monkey shuffle up a tree to get out of this six foot of snow. And I realized then I might want some provisions in case I were to happen to get stuck in that snow. So then I started carrying all of this stuff in my backpack when I went skiing and snowboarding just in case. The basics of a med kit are not complicated. A lot of these things you can get at big box stores or you know the Amazons of the world, or you certainly can just piece yours together by going to actual medical supply stores. But the key message here is that preparedness starts at home. You want to have a med kit in your home. You want to have one in your car. And if you've got multiple cars, have one in all of them. When you're equipping yourself with the essential tools and knowledge, right, then you can handle unexpected medical situations like sizzling your stupid finger on a log in the fire that you didn't even realize was hot until you touched it. Then I knew. So well stock your medical kit. For minor home injuries, 
right? This is going to reduce panic, anxiety. Certainly for me, I wasn't panicked. I didn't have a ton of anxiety, but I wasn't feeling great about the burned finger. And a little bit of burn gel or an aloe plant in the house would have been sufficient to handle the immediate needs of my scalding, blistering finger, right? What if there is a delay in the emergency response? then you need to be able to do just some minor upkeep of what somebody has done to themselves or had done to them, right? When Mike Glover started this whole thing a long, long time ago, he was basing a lot of it off of what he saw on the TV when it came to the social unrest in Portland, when people were calling for first responders and the first responders were either not coming or weren't able to get there. So it was all get off the couch, become your own first responder. That medical kit at home, that's going to be a lifesaver, figuratively and literally. And it's going to bolster your self-confidence and it's going to increase your opportunities to build that emotional resilience when something goes sideways. When a crisis happens in your home, you're able to avert a lot of the major panic and anxiety of it simply by just having the basics. So the key message I really want you to hone in on here is that the first step towards building your emotional resiliency at home is being prepared for those unexpected medical emergencies. You don't know what they'll be, but they're certainly the ones. They are the ones that could send your whole life sideways if you're not adequately prepared. So because I like to give people action steps whenever I do these things up, here's some things that I really would like for you all to put a little bit of focus on. If you haven't already, then be working on these within your own life, in your med kit, or just skills that you could attain. Um, Sterile gauze, pads, adhesive bandages in various sizes. If you've got kids, no doubt you've got Band-Aids, but do you have a lot of gauze in case something really goes nuts? I mean, maybe the kid gets a hold of the knife while they're trying to cut an apple and the finger comes off with the apple peel. I don't know. Lots of things can happen in the kitchen. Do you have enough gauze to handle that? Antiseptic wipes, antibiotic ointment, hydrogen peroxide. I mean, you can buy a bottle of this stuff for 99 cents. There's no reason it shouldn't have a plethora of that. Just think about how much could have been saved or helped when people were on the Oregon Trail if they'd had hydrogen peroxide. (laughs) I just got done watching 1883. And I'm sitting here watching some of these people get sick and injured over things. And I'm just like, man, these people didn't even have soap with them. (laughs) Imagine what soap, let alone hydrogen peroxide, could have done whenever they cut themselves on a piece of barbed wire. And they're like, well, that's it. Guess I'm going to die now. It's so insane how much our medical supplies have changed over the last 150 years. uh, And yet some people don't even have these things in their own homes today. Obviously, pain relievers, um, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, take with, you know, read the label. I'm not a doctor. Don't take the stuff if you're allergic to it. Legal disclaimer. Tweezers, scissors, digital thermometer, emergency contact list, um, local poison control, family doctor. Where do you have those numbers? Are those things handy? A first aid manual or guide. Maybe if I had a first aid manual or guide, it would have told me that the temperature of the water when it says cool is supposed to be 56 degrees. I still don't know the answer to that question. Uh, Then, of course, a CPR face shield and a pair of disposable gloves in case you do have to do um, CPR. Do you understand the ABCs of CPR? The airways, the breathing, the circulation. I mean, by now, 
I mean, I'm 47. I've taken so many CPR classes and I don't necessarily keep the certification current, but I would absolutely know how to perform CPR. I was a wet and wild lifeguard for like three years back in Orlando in the late 90s. So I remember how many times we had to practice that. So there are some great ideas for your home medical kit. Work on that. Have that be something that you have prepared and ready to go. Emotional resiliency starts with preparation. It's put to the test in action. If somebody cuts themselves, are you running around like Chicken Little, freaking out, yelling the sky is falling, when a little bit of gauze, a little bit of medical tape could get that wound sealed up enough to get you to a professional who would be able to take care of that? These are little things that can turn quite disastrous if we're not thinking ahead about them. Moving on to the next topic, the effective response in crisis and emergency scenarios. Now, this is really covered a lot within the communication category in January's blogs. And now that we're moving into medical, they're sort of feeding into one another. They're very well placed in the idea that we go from communication into um, the medical side of this. And so, again, when we think about ways that we can be building up our fortress, it's understanding that effective responses and crises and emergency scenarios, like you just don't see them coming. You know, yes, back in the day, medieval times, certainly you could see that army forthcoming for days because they'd be stirring up dust and it'd be a bunch of people on foot and horses. Um, It'd be awesome if a lot of crises were to announce themselves from miles away with a stir of dust (laughs) and the banging of drums. But in the midst of chaos, there's the opportunity. I think believe that was a Sun Tzu uh, quote. And we want to be looking for the opportunity within the chaos. And how can we be the one who is calm in the face of adversity? How can we be the one who's level-headed and ready to rock and roll? When I talk about this on my addiction recovery podcast, I talk about are you emotionally reactive or are you emotionally grounded? Because if you're emotionally reactive, then you are reacting. If you're emotionally grounded, then you are responding. That's why they don't call them first reactors. They're first responders. They're trained. They're calm. No matter what's going on around them, they seem to be the most level of heads. It's a lot of training that gets our first responders to be in that position. You're not just born calm, cool, and collected whenever a, a towering inferno is going on in front of you or you show up on the scene of a major car accident. It's a lot of training that gets people there. So I really want you to focus and highlight that there are skills, there are strategies for effective response in emergencies, whether that's the urban chaos, whether that's remote wilderness, uh, critical medical situations. There is training that we provide within our membership. There is things like our adventure challenge that we're doing where you learn how to effectively respond in emergency and crisis scenarios, specifically so that you have gone through the training and now you have the confidence to know that you have a background in it, that you've at least gone through the motions, you've gone through the practice of it. Crisis situations and the right skills and a calm level head will save lives. And you don't ever know when you'll be in a saving life kind of situation. 
when Derek Jones came on, again, I mentioned him earlier, he's our Southwest coordinator. He lives in uh, right outside north of Los Angeles. When they were doing a training with some of their members, as some of their members were literally traveling from one of the scenarios to the next, they saw somebody get hit um, while they were riding their bicycle. A person got hit by a car. The family didn't get hit by the car. They literally witnessed somebody getting hit by a car who was also riding their bicycle. Let me make sure I said that very clear. And they were able to be the first responders on that scene and help this person who'd just been hit by the car be able to stabilize them until the first responders came there, be able to professionally and adequately be able to hand over the victim of the hit and run accident by giving all of the first responders the proper information that they needed to know what they had done and what they believed was needing to be done. And of course, first responders show up and that's something they're very well aware of, but not many people are trained in how to hand over a victim of a hit and run. These people's training helped them be able to do that. Training and the knowledge turn ordinary individuals into very capable responders. Can you quickly assess medical situations in a crisis, preventing overwhelm, instilling a sense of purpose and direction and calm? That's that community leadership that we talk about so much. Are you the leader when everything seems to be going into turmoil and chaos? Or again, chicken little, sky is falling, sky is falling. We want to be that one that people can turn to. And here's the thing about being a leader. You don't get to decide. Most of the time, people don't necessarily get to decide if in a crisis situation, they're going to be the ones turned to for answers. Yes, if you were promoted to manager or boss at a business, then clearly you understand that you are now in the position to start answering questions for people. But when it comes to just living our lives and we're all at the grocery store and all of a sudden some chaos goes down, who's the person who steps up? And is that person who steps up actually going to be a good leader? Are they just going to be some boss hog kind of person who thinks that they know everything, wants to tell everybody what to do, but doesn't really have an idea of where this whole thing is trying to go? Are you the person who can step in and not only know what to ask people to do, but can do so in a way that instills confidence in them? That's that effective response. You make quick, informed decisions with swift and effective assessments crucial to the steadiness within the chaos. You can use meditation and mindfulness exercises just to be able to quickly calm yourself down. I have been doing this now for years. I'm not the best meditator as far as clearing my mind, and I've read enough about it to know that that doesn't necessarily even have to be the goal. For me, the meditation is to just calm down my central nervous system get my head to stop spiraling over thoughts that aren't doing it any justice and be able to focus in on the task at hand. Whether that's writing an essay, preparing for a podcast, or preparing for a coaching session with one of my clients, can I wipe away the rest of the world and just be focused on this one thing that's happening in front of me? Much easier to do whenever somebody has, let's say, smashed their hand in a car door or you've blown out a tire on the side of the road because certainly then your central nervous system is all jacked up and ready to go. Adrenaline's flowing. It's like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Let's do something here. 
But whenever it doesn't necessarily feel that adrenaline rushed is when our mind can start going all over the places. And mindfulness techniques can certainly help with that. So when we think about rapid assessment techniques in chaotic environments, some of the ones that I've brainstormed up would be a knowledge of triage systems like START, simple triage and rapid treatment, um, skills in quick patient assessments, going back to CPR that I mentioned earlier, airway, breathing, circulation, fun little acronym, ABCs. All right, if somebody's laying on the ground, do you know how to f- quickly figure out or at least start checking things off the list of what might be wrong with them? I was talking to a friend today who said that they were having their deck repaired. And one of the construction workers said they were going out to the truck to get a tool and then didn't come back for like 10 minutes. So one of the other construction workers walks out to the front yard and finds his buddy laying face down on the ground, unresponsive, and starts to move this guy. Now, this is all being told to me by my friend. And there was a lot of details that we don't have enough time to get into, so I'll just cut to the chase. But he moves this guy without knowing why he's on the ground. He could have slipped and fallen, broken his back, and now he's shifted him further, potentially injuring his back. The guy could have knocked himself out. A lot of things could have happened, and this guy didn't know, just goes up and just starts like shaking his buddy, like, hey, like... He would have just laid on the ground to take a nap. It turns out he slipped on a rock, fell down, knocked himself out, and started having seizures. And, of course, you know, my bud, he runs out there. He's got some training, so he's able to quickly realize that the seizures were probably part of the head trauma, was able to get 911 on the phone. Ultimately, they were able to stabilize him when the first responders got there, and they had to medvac this dude in a helicopter to the hospital. That's how severe slipping on a rock and hitting his head on the ground caused him to be injured. And while my buddy was relatively okay during this scenario, he's like, man, it was a lot to take on because nobody knew what to do and everybody was just sort of running around. He's like, I knew enough to not move the guy and to check his airway and I knew he was breathing. And then when the seizures came to just hold his neck and not allow him to sort of shake and potentially hurt himself worse. I mean, that's better than not knowing anything, but it's certainly not as much as they could have known in that situation. So going back, Airways, breathing, circulation. You see somebody laying on the ground. What are you going to surmise about what's going on so that you can help that person out? You could have a pocket guide or an app for emergency assessment and response. But I certainly hope that the first time you open up that app isn't whenever you've burned your finger on a log inside your fireplace and you're trying to find an answer for what the temperature of cool water is. Because the, <laughs> because you want it's not the best time to, you know, I'm going to go over to the app store and find out what, how, how am I going to help somebody laying on the ground unconscious? If you're going to carry around a pocket guide or an app that's going to help you, then no how to maneuver yourself through that guide or that app. Familiarize yourself with it so that you at least know what chapter or potentially even pages that you've marked. Uh, Look at the app. Figure out where certain areas of certain things are so that you can find them quickly. Uh, Training in identifying and prioritizing injuries. If they would have seen this guy laying on the ground today and his head had been busted open and he was also unconscious, then are you checking airway, breathing, and circulation first? Or are you trying to stop the wound in his head that's bleeding? How do you prioritize injuries? You you want to be practicing in clear, effective communication under stress. We talked about this in January's blog post. 
How are you communicating during moments of crises? If you are the one yelling and screaming, you're definitely not going to help everybody else become cool, calm, and collective. All right. And if you're over there yelling and screaming like the sky is falling, are you able to take orders from somebody who does know what's going on in order to alleviate the crisis in front of you? Familiarity with portable emergency metal equipment is extremely important. When I was the lifeguard at Wet n Wild, we were trained on the portable defibrillators, the ones with those little sticky pads that you put on somebody's chest. It's important that we knew how to utilize those. How many of you have ever actually pulled the pin on a fire extinguisher and shot that stuff out? How many of you? I have never done it. I mean, I've watched the videos. I know where to break the little plastic tab, pull the little pin, but I still have never once utilized a fire extinguisher. Never had a reason to. But maybe that's a good idea to crack one of those things open and figure that out. Because I wouldn't want a grease fire in my kitchen to be the first time that I'm realizing that that little plastic thing that's holding the pin in is actually a lot stronger than it looks. And then regularly participating in simulation exercises or drills. As members of American Contingency, you have a regional coordinator. They are putting on events. You have community organizers also putting on events. I know that South Dakota puts on some pretty great events. So I know that there are people within our organization putting on events in order to help people through some of these simulation exercises. Derek, as I mentioned earlier, was doing one in Central California, um, allowing people to learn how to do the things that we talk about, to actually go through them. Again, you can play out scenarios in your head all day long. But until you're in the thick of it, you just don't know. All right, now let's move on to segment three. And this is where we're going to be talking about teaching children the basic first aid skills. Because one of the coolest things about when we learn stuff, right, and this is all about cultivating confidence and emotional resiliency in children. When we learn things, there's an opportunity for us to then go off and to teach them to other people. So I'm getting my master's in psychology right now to be a clinical mental health counselor en route to what I'm assuming is going to be a PhD one day because I just seem to be really into this stuff. And what I'm finding is that when I read this information in these books, it can be very complex, especially when you start getting into psychological um, theories and principles. Some of this stuff is like Freudian written way back in the day. My best way of internalizing it and knowing that I understand it is to teach it on my other two podcasts. So I will take notes on what I've read, and then I will go and teach it to all of my listeners on my podcast. When you learn something, you've gotten to learn it for yourself. When you teach it, you get to learn it a second time because now you're explaining it to somebody else and the information becomes even more instilled in you and actually becomes something that you can utilize more regularly because you've actually placed it into your long-term memory. And think about a child. They are so fresh and new to the world, their brain is not nearly filled with all of the stuff that an adult's brain is filled with. This is why children uh, learn substantially faster than adults, especially foreign languages, because they haven't yet gotten themselves locked into a belief system. So if you've got a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, 11, any of those ages, right, they're going to be much better suited for that adaptability and that flexibility if you start teaching them these things at a young age. I mean, back in the day, this was just the way Americans lived, right? We 
lived on farms. We lived out in rural areas. As a child, I remember very distinctly being told to go mow the lawn with this sickle. And it was like this wooden pole with this metal blade at the end of it. And I'd sit out there and I'd be chopping this grass with a sickle. And I honestly think that my stepdad just had me do that to see how long I would tolerate that nonsense until I just went and got the lawnmower one day and just started the darn thing up. And it did take me a summer. I didn't think I was supposed to touch the lawnmower. And then one day he wasn't home and he said, uh, you know, go out there and cut the grass with the sickle. And while he was gone, I got out the mower and mowed the whole lawn with it and had the cleaned it all up, did everything, put it right back where it was. And I was like, okay, sweet. I mowed the lawn, didn't have to use the sickle. Yay, Jesse. Dad will never know. Well, <laughs> if you've ever used a sickle and conversely also utilized a lawnmower, <laughs> You can just imagine the difference in the length of the grass and the consistency of the cut <laughs> of a lawnmower compared to a wooden stick with a metal blade at the end of it. So uh, needless to say, stepdad was not fooled by my whimsicalness at eight years old and very much was astute in understanding that I had utilized the lawnmower for the task in which he had told me to go utilize the sickle. And his response was, and I'm pretty sure this is a quote, Thank you so much for doing that. Congratulations. You're now my lawn boy. <laughs> so I wasn't in trouble unless you meant that for the next, like, I don't know, 10 years of my life till I went away to college, I was the one in charge of mowing the lawn. And so what I'm going with this is that children are very adept at learning things, especially whenever they're put in a situation where learning something new is going to benefit how fast they can get something done in order to go back to their Nintendo and play Mario. And this is like the 1987 version, okay, guys? It's 8-bit. But I wanted to get back in there and play it, and the lawnmower was the way to make that happen. So when we give a child a fish, right, then they eat for a day. But when we teach them how to catch their own fish, now we've fed them for a lifetime. And if we can teach the child so well how to catch the fish that they could go off and teach it to other children, now we have just created a leader. So you want to be talking to your children about how they can be leaders when it comes to their friends. Because think about what kids are off doing out there, right? We're sending the kids outside. If you are a parent, and I have no doubt you are, if you are listening to this podcast, then you're definitely cut from a different cloth than the way a lot of children are being allowed to behave nowadays. And you're not letting your kids sit in front of the tech all the time and you're telling them to go outside and play. So imagine this scenario. You've got kids of varying ages all running around outside playing doing whatever kids do. Now, we thought a fun game back in the day was Red Rover, Red Rover, and we would run through each other's arms, which is really just tackling people without a ball involved. And then we would also play um, on huge piles of rocks out in fields. And whenever that became boring, then we would throw rocks at each other and try to hit them with sticks. <laughs> we were not well off. We did not have baseball bats and gloves. <laughs> Our fun was hitting sticks with rocks. Yes, that's what we did. Um, we went down to the creek and into the river and onto the lake, and we would play around those places. So now I've painted enough scenarios. Now I just want you to put a bunch of children of varying ages running around with each other doing this stuff. What do you think the likelihood is that somebody gets injured? And generally, all these kids are running around playing with other kids. There are not adults present. 
They're out there just having fun, being kids. Which one of those kids is going to know what to do if little Johnny takes a rock to the face and all of a sudden has a big old crack in his skull and blood's coming down his face? You think adults don't handle anxiety-filled situations of blood and things of that nature very well. Imagine a bunch of 5 to 11-year-olds. What do you think their behavior is going to be? Because if everybody just sprints home and leaves little Johnny laying in the woods with a gash in his face, that's not going to go over very well with all the parents whose children were involved. We want to be talking to our children about basic first aid skills. So when children learn these basic first aid skills, they are prepared for blood. Somebody slips and falls and hurts their arm, their ankle, they know how to handle that situation, reducing the victim's fear, reducing all of their panic. Because small accidents, something that might seem minute to us as adults, can be very freaky to a child. We want them prepared. Equip them with first aid skills so they can act responsibly. They can help their peers in emergencies. Foster that sense of community bonding with your children. I know we live in a cul-de-sac here in North Alabama, and there are children in our cul-de-sac, and there's a lot of children on the next street's cul-de-sac. And when I'm out in the summer getting my steps on, there'll be 10, 15 kids. And they're all running around in the street, and they're having a good old time. And this isn't a street where you've got to worry about cars speeding through. So playing in the streets is just as safe as it was for us in the 80s, if you're a child of, you know, latchkey kid history. So we were all running around enjoying ourselves. Well, I've seen kids do the same. And there are not adults around. So there is that opportunity for that little community of all these kids that are in these two cul-de-sacs that I live in to be able to support one another, to bring mutual care amongst one another if something were to go sideways. We want to empower children. These life-saving skills, these knowledge that we might take for granted as adults because we have learned CPR seven times since we were in middle school, a seven-year-old has learned it zero times more than likely, and maybe you're a parent who's got them at least trained in it once at that age, but a majority of kids may not have that knowledge. Do you really want to leave your child's safety up to a bunch of untrained children, or do you want your child to know? Do you get with the other parents and say, I got an idea. How about we teach our children ABCs? How about we teach them how to handle a cut? If one of our children falls down and twists their ankle, do we know how to get a splint on them? Or do we at least know how to go find somebody who can help while also getting the child out of the street so that they are not potentially a victim of a hit and run on top of the sprained ankle? All of these things are actual scenarios that could be happening any day now. So we're educating. We're teaching. We're talking them through this stuff. You could create a little junior first aid club in your neighborhood. Get your community involved. Get them engaged. Kids love learning new things. Tell a really cool story about how when you were a kid and somebody fell off their bike, you were able to help them. Really get them enwrapped in the story of that and say, so today I am going to teach you how to help your friend if they fall off their bicycle. And then just go through a list of things that would happen if a child falls off a bicycle. You can handle a lot of things in that. You would have cuts and scrapes and bruises, potentially broken arms or a broken leg. Kid could fall really hard and hit their head, knock themselves out. I mean, you could cover a gauntlet 
of different crisis scenarios just by discussing what to do if they fall off their bicycle or a friend were to while they were out playing. We have discussed with them basic wound care, how to call for help, how to recognize common injuries, uh, the simple rice method, the rest, ice, compression, elevation for a minor sprain or injury. If they are running around in the woods, at least we can get that ankle elevated while we wait for adults to arrive. Right? There, there are age-appropriate first aid books or guides. I know I was doing research for this whole podcast. It is not hard to type in first aid guides for children. They put colorful little pictures in there. Hell, I want to buy one just for me. I think they are way more interesting to read than the adult ones where the print's like a nine font and I have to pull out my bifocals like I've got to read it with one of those magnifying glasses. No, give me the children's one where it's all colorful and it's got animals acting like they're children inside the book. (laughs) I find that way more enjoyable to read. Um, Role play scenarios. Kids love role playing. They love acting things out. Get them involved in something like that. Regular first aid quizzes. You could do that at the dinner table. Hey, you see one of your friends and he falls down and he hits his head. What would you do? Uh, would you stabilize the neck? Would you ABC him? Would you look for a triage way? Would you? What would you do in that situation? Emergency contact list. Do kids know where that is? Do they know how to find that? A simple 911 isn't always the answer. Who else would they need to call? What other numbers would they need to know? Kids are very adept at using technology. I'm watching some five-year-olds move around on an iPhone in a way that even I don't know how to, and I consider myself pretty darn good when it comes to the iPhone knowledge. These kids can learn things way faster than we're giving them credit for. And now there's videos on YouTube. There's probably TikToks and Reels about this stuff. There are mediums that will engage the children. Find the ones that engage your child. I mean, Blippy or Baby Shark or I don't know. I'm just trying to rattle off what's the the Paw Patrol that's still that was so popular. Whatever ones are popular now, they're changing all the time. I'd be willing to bet some of those have done emergency scenario first aid kinds of topics within their show. Find those if that's their favorite character of the flavor of the month. I mean, back whenever I was younger, I think it was like Sesame Street and Barney and Mr. Rogers. Those ones, boom, yeah, use them, but find the medium that will entertain your child to be able to get your point across on why it's important to learn this stuff. So once again, teaching children basic first aid skills, it's going to create emotional support. It's going to allow them to feel confident and and understand that if something goes sideways, they can be the one to step up as the leader. And certainly, if you're teaching your child information and the other children don't know that information, you're going to want to either get your child to discuss it with their friends or talk to the other parents about how all the children should be involved in the learning process. Because if your child's the only one who knows how to do this stuff and they happen to find themselves on the ground needing help and nobody else knows what to do, all that knowledge inside your child's head is not going to help them if they're the ones knocked out because they slipped on a rock. So look for age-appropriate first aid kits so that they can begin to practice. Find those age-appropriate first aid books and guides. Look for one of the media mediums I've been mentioning, whether it be one of their favorite characters on their shows, something that will allow them to learn this in a way where it's enjoyable and you're not just sitting there reading out of the first aid, you know, Red Cross handbook circa 1977. Like make it interesting for them. 
books, online resources. These are going to be tailored to teaching children about first aid. Basic skills like bandaging, calling for help, identifying emergencies, regular family drills to practice what they've learned so that they can actually get some of that muscle memory built up around these things that you've taught them. The emergency contact information so it's easy, it's accessible. If your child does have a tech device, then put that stuff on there and show them where it's at and let them know why they need to contact these people if an emergency goes down. And at what space in the entire process of helping somebody who's hurt themselves, do they make that call? Right? They see somebody slip and fall, are they immediately calling that kid's parents? Or are they first trying to stabilize their neck, make sure that they're not bleeding too much, and then they go? Let them know what order of operations are. Right, Give them a standard operating procedure. Teach them a way to do it. They will follow that. But if you teach them nothing, then they're just chicken littling it. There's interactive learning tools and encouragement. Everybody loves encouragement. Adults love encouragement. Children love encouragement. I don't know when it came across to adults to stop encouraging each other. I'm a huge fan. I I run a whole addiction recovery community. When somebody does something good, even if it seems small to people who've been in sobriety and recovery for a long time, somebody who's on day five, it might be a huge deal that they got out of bed, opened up the curtains, and took a shower before 10 a.m. You know, we send little memes of confetti because five days sober gets somebody to 50 days sober, gets somebody to 500 days sober. So let's celebrate the shower and the curtains being open at 10 (laughs) a.m. Let's not be like, yeah, you should be doing that. You're 42 years old. No, let's celebrate. Just like we would celebrate a child who does something. Right, this whole participation trophy conversation, I got one of those in 1984 playing baseball. This is not a new thing. They were handing out stupid ribbons and trophies in the 80s too. I don't have that trophy, didn't want the stupid trophy. Our team lost. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't still fun to do and there wasn't still like, hey, you stuck through something. You're seven years old. Congratulations. You have the attention span of a goldfish if you're lucky. Like, let's celebrate things when they happen. All right, it's not handing out silly little ribbons for every little thing that they do, but it is praising them for hard work and focus and determination, right? That's what we're praising. That's how you build a growth mindset in a child, right? We don't say, oh, you're the smartest one here because we don't want to label them that. And then when they get pushed outside their comfort zone and they no longer feel smart, they pull away from learning new things. We encourage the hard work. We encourage the determination. Then they lock their identity to that. Oh, I'm a determined person. I'm a hardworking person. And now you're introducing me to something new that's challenging me. Well, my identity says that I'm determined and hardworking. So let's push forward on this. That's the encouragement. That's the praise that builds the confidence in the skills. There is a whole lot of uncertainty in our world. And when we can lock on to emotional resiliency, embracing it as something that can be cultivated and then put into action, that's building foundations of preparedness and self-reliance. That's having that home medical kit. That's understanding effective responses in emergency situations and crises. That's cultivating confidence and emotional resiliency in children. We all have something in our lives that we could be working on, we could be working toward, and emotional resiliency and having that has your brick and mortar in your fortress is going to set you up for success well, well, well beyond when somebody reaches the limitations of their intelligence. 
Many a study has been done. Lots of books have been written on emotional intelligence and emotional resiliency. And there's enough people out there starting to say that emotional intelligence matters more than actual intelligence quotient. Because while somebody can be extremely smart, if they cannot handle themselves in a emergency scenario or just a simple crisis or just, I don't know, the detour telling them to go left instead of right and all of a sudden they don't know what to do anymore. That emotional ability to stabilize yourself, to ground yourself, that is going to pay it forward tenfold, hundredfold, ten thousandfold. When we think about a contingency in the American Contingency Organization, it's about understanding what is your second, third, fourth, fifth, seventh, tenth, fifteenth, seventeenth plan. What contingencies do you have in place when things start to go sideways? And the first tool in your arsenal that's going to help you is going to be your emotional resiliency, your ability to ground yourself no matter what chaos might be abound. I can't stress it enough. And in the month of February, we're going to be talking about emotional resiliency and so many other topics wrapped up around the category of medical. So if you're ready to learn more information, if you're ready to really get involved with a community of active individuals, all you have to do, go to AmericanContingency.com. You can hit um, on our pricing to find out how much it would cost. Seriously, it is like the price of a cup of coffee or uh, less than a value meal. Uh, we, we talk about our benefits on there, our mission. We give you a lot of really great information about why we do the things that we do, why this stuff matters to us. And if you're ready to be around people who care about this stuff, who want to build a strong community, who don't want to spend all day screaming at the TV and instead want to get up off their couch and go do something that actually is going to make a change, not just for themselves, but their community at large, for the betterment of their family and anyone else associated with them. American Contingency is the organization for you. We have spent years cultivating our members, our member site, and our members alone bring value. And that's the coolest thing. People don't just join and say, yeah, I'm a member. I'll come to that meeting thing like once a month and I'm sure everything will just work out perfect in my life. No, we're active. We care. We get involved. And if you've got a skill, I am sure, sure of it. Somebody would love to learn that skill from you. And if you're ready to learn another skill, I am sure, sure of it, that there are people who know that skill that you're ready to learn. They're in American Contingency, and they're waiting for you. Come on, check us out, AmericanContingency.com. Look over the website. Tell me that you don't find some value in it. I assure you, whether it's on the front end or the back end where all the members meet, there's information out there that will help you prepare to respond and recover. Because there is a whole mess of uncertainty around us. But, but here's the key. There is a whole lot of certainty as well. Stop by our website, become a member, and we'll help you feel, hear, see the kind of self-reliance you can have within yourself. The year has just begun and it's already challenging us. Let's not allow our own internal self to hold us back from what we can externally achieve. We're here when you're ready and we'll keep the fire going for you so you can find your way. Until then, go create your blessings. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great one. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.